Hey, I'm Veronica Dagger, and this is the Wall Street Journal Secrets of Wealthy Women, where women share how they tackle career, money, and the world. For the past few weeks, cities across America and around the world have been rocked by protests and unrest sparked by the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis. His death has also sparked conversations about race on the streets, at home, and at work. Linnea Irvin says it's about time. Linnea is president for the Center for Talent Innovation, a nonprofit that helps leaders create more diverse and inclusive workplaces. But before she took on that role, she spent a decade as an executive in global finance at Bank of America, where she became a well-known advocate for diversity on Wall Street. Today, she's here to tell us why it's important to talk about race at work, how her own personal experience as an LGBTQ person of color has shaped her views, and how these conversations could help change corporate America. Welcome to Secrets, Linnea. Thank you for having me. Our pleasure. First, I want to ask, how are you? You know, I am, you know, I'm well this morning, but uh, it's been an extraordinarily painful and divided few weeks in this country. It has. Talking about how you are after the killing of George Floyd was the focus of an opinion piece for Newsweek called Breaking the Silence at Work. In the piece, you described what you called a candid conversation you had with your staff about race. Would you tell us a bit about it? Uh, so the week before last, you know, I, I, I came into the work bringing a tremendous amount of pain. Following the, the death of George Floyd, our team realized it was important for us to, to bring some of these conversations into the workplace. The current pandemic and, uh, you know, kind of global health crisis has exposed, once again, structural inequalities in our society. And it's extremely important for leaders and this is one of the reasons why you know, we had the conversation within my organization and the reason why I pinned the op-ed is that you know, during this time of global pandemic and severe economic dislocation, what we find is we now have millions of people who've experienced tremendous and rapid human loss and unemployment. It's important to uh, you know, kind of have the conversations and bring the outside world in because as I mentioned in, in the Newsweek piece, where I speak about the right to anger and rage seeping through, you know, I write, over time, fear and grief become fault lines, hastening an eruption and a collective outcry for justice. And so I knew then, uh, before having the conversation with my team, uh, and what we know now is what we're witnessing is something that shouldn't be a surprise to anyone because you can only expect people to push down such hurt, such violence, endure countless downgrades to one's dignity before an eruption occurs, before something has to give. So true. Another quote in your op-ed that was really striking for us, you wrote, our communities are tired, angry, grieving, and bringing trauma into the workplace. We bring this pain into the office, into virtual meetings, and we are expected to shove it down. That was really powerful to read. Do you think your white colleagues understood that's what people of color go through? It's hard to say, but our survey, our, our research actually reveals that there is a likelihood that white colleagues are not aware of that. 
Uh, we find that when it comes to race, there are often perception gaps in the workplace. Uh, nearly 65% of black professionals feel that they are required to work far harder to advance in the workplace, uh, whereas 16% of their white colleagues believe that statement to be true. There's always going to be this disconnect around what your teams are experiencing, but I think leaders are also equally at risk of kind of missing the point or uh, overlooking some of the impact of COVID and the police brutality that we've witnessed in, in the past few weeks on employees in the workplace. And I think um, even if they are aware, perhaps in the past, they might not have been as vocal around uh, kind of sharing or demonstrating that awareness in the workplace. What was it like as a leader to share openly what it means to be black in America? <laughs> You know, it was a, a tremendous, on one hand, there was some kind of vulnerability to sit and share my experiences. But on the other hand, I know it to be extremely important for leaders to be visible, to be vocal, to offer up safe space for tough conversations during the times that matter most. And so while it was difficult, it was extremely powerful because it offered space for storytelling. It offered uh, you know, space for allies and others to listen. I actually think it offered some meaningful bridging capital and deepened our team's sense of belonging. Would you be willing to share a story that maybe you shared with your team about your personal experience? Mm -hmm. As a black, female-bodied, out LGBT leader on Wall Street, you know, I explained to them that I know firsthand, uh, I know for a fact that at the intersections, I'm going to be discounted in some of the spaces I occupy, right? Uh, despite uh, access and privilege I may have. I spoke to microaggressions in the workplace, the experiences of either being told I'm articulate or being asked if I can speak articulately to a client or leading a meeting and the males in the room only addressing the cisgendered white men on the other side of the table, even if it was my meeting or I was the most senior banker present. And you have these moments where you just, you know, kind of small, tiny cuts that do have an impact on one's lived experience. You know, I shared experiences with policing in my neighborhoods uh, growing up, knowing firsthand what it feels like to be confronted by an officer or placed in handcuffs when you weren't doing anything. Curfews obviously have been a very, uh, have been a, a long storied part of controlling black and brown neighborhoods and I'm from Los Angeles. So it was a very intimate conversation, but it was one that, uh, you know, I shared after listening to the wider team, after observing the, the way that they shared their feelings and their frustrations, their fears. They acknowledged the things that they didn't know. I encouraged them to bring all of those feelings and that emotion into our work. Obviously, our work is uh, our research and our advisory arm are focused on diversity, equity, inclusion in corporate workplaces. And so, you know, there's an opportunity to channel what we're experiencing this moment to really amplify uh, what comes out of our data. 
But it was important for me to also share one or two personal experiences as well, just so that they understood that it's real for me. You know, I'm not just a passive observer from a leadership standpoint. I care about them, um, but I also have lived experiences of my own that inform my passion around overcoming racism in this country. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. How further has your team responded since having the conversation at work? The powerful thing about this, following those conversations, so many of them have continued the dialogue with one another. One-on-one, in small pods, they've continued to have the conversation. And when I wrote the piece, you know, I received so many emails and phone calls after the conversation, but then after they actually saw the Newsweek piece, so many emails came. So I've never been more proud to work for this organization. I've never felt more seen. And I think it's one of those uh, one of those things that I would encourage leaders to lean into. Lean into leveraging your platform to drive change externally, but also being visible internally when it really matters. What advice do you have for managers who want to have these conversations that are so meaningful and long overdue, but they don't know where to start? First, leaders must commit to addressing bias and understanding the dynamics at play within their own work environment. That is a really challenging part of the work, but it's critical. You have to do, do the look, you have to look inward and identify, okay, uncover where there might be bias, diagnose some cultural weaknesses. Uh, you do that organizational introspection, at least helps to begin to have that awakening within the organization. When you think about wanting to have these conversations, these intimate conversations, perhaps about race, or perhaps it's a town hall and it's something larger in scale, doing that look inward first is critical. And then when you, when you confront moments like these, go into the conversation as open as possible. From a leadership standpoint, listen, be active in your leadership. It definitely needs to be um, pro-employee. It needs to be visible um, to all within the organization. Demonstrate some awareness uh, of disproportionate impact. When you think about COVID-19, unemployment rates, the wealth gap, police brutality, I mean, sure, the, the list goes on. Demonstrate some awareness of that and then provide the safe space for your, your teams to be heard. And the good thing about it is you don't have to have all of the answers. Just find a way to sit in the discomfort and know that it's better to show up imperfectly than not to show up at all. Would you elaborate on how the conversations help the workplace? I think, you know, these conversations are an extremely important way to ensure that leaders maintain human connection, ensure people are heard, And they actually do drive a tremendous amount of understanding um, from those who feel like they haven't been heard, but also for those um, who are wondering, they struggle with what to say, what to do, how to act. And what's created there is some bridging capital that really creates a powerful shift towards active allyship and a greater sense of belonging for everyone. Coming up, we'll hear how Linnea's personal journey led her to become a leader in diversity and inclusion.
WSJ Special Access gives you a front row seat to some of the Wall Street Journal's most exciting content, like The Quirkier Side of Life, a new series that features the fun, surprising stories our reporters come across. The chief executive walks 10,000 barefoot steps every day. He recalls stepping on a bee, which put him off earthing for a couple of days, but he got back to it. Check out The Quirkier Side of Life on WSJ Special Access, only for WSJ subscribers. So you've been a prominent voice for diversity and inclusion for a while, including the 10 years you worked in global finance on Wall Street. In the past, the image of Wall Street is basically white, cisgender male and straight. Things are starting to change. But can you talk a little bit about what it was like to be an LGBT person of color in that space? Wall Street has definitely been transformed over the last uh, decade, I would say. But when I joined the industry early on, you know, like anyone else, I focused on output, high productivity. As a black emerging leader at the time, I felt I needed to be twice as good, twice as fast. And then if you think of 10, 15 years ago, the invisibility of the LGBT community, you know, made it so that there was also, you know, kind of this need for connection. Wall Street tends to be a tremendously simple uh, in that it's a fit culture, right? Uh, And so there was a tremendous amount of covering on my part. I wore silk blouses and pearls. I wore the corporate uniform or the Wall Street uniform. I hyper-feminized, in fact, so that the focus would be on my content and the words and not focused on a perhaps more masculine presentation. I covered because it might have taken some of the, I guess, difference out of the forefront. And I did that for a very long time, for several years. I would say maybe eight years into the firm. Obviously more senior within the organization. I've always held client-facing roles within banking and markets. And so I had a bit of you know, flexibility. I was a known quantity. I was able to then determine uh, or decide at one point, you know what, I'm not going to do any external speaking engagement for the bank unless I present the way that, that I would like to present. And then it became, well, you know what, I'm going to, you know, choose a day or two within the office that I'm not going to wear the silk blouse. I'm not going to wear the pearls. And ultimately, you know, nothing changed. Nothing changed with clients. In fact, I felt more, even more comfortable when speaking at conferences and delivering messages of leadership in my made-to-measure shirts and pocket squares. And that was an, an opportunity for me to signal to emerging talent behind me that it's okay to actually live in uh, your authenticity. I am where I am today because of proactive engagement and participation in transforming corporate culture over the, the 10 or so years, uh, I spent a tremendous amount of time with employee research groups, LGBT, women, those supporting black professionals within the organization, both in leadership roles, advisor roles, enterprise level advocacy roles. But ultimately my goal was to sit within the business, but then also ensure that we were creating an environment more welcoming to emerging talent of all kinds. 
And so I, you know, I took on uh, those types of roles early on. And then I was called upon to do cross-industry work, cross-Wall Street. And then I was invited to join the Human Rights Campaign's National Business Advisory Council, where we looked at uh, LGBT inclusion challenges globally for large multinationals. And so my engagement, it happened quite organically because I, I wanted to be a part of the change. But the scale of my reach and impact increased over time. We had a panel of women of color on the show last November talking about some of the difficulties they face at work, feeling like they weren't being heard, getting passed over for promotions, and even the struggle of being the only person of color in the room. What can managers and employers do to better address these issues? Just be intentional about hiring, about developing talent, about promoting talent. Be intentional about including and co-creating solutions with black professionals in the workplace. If your challenge is retention and advancement of black women in your senior ranks, okay, fantastic. Bring that group, bring that cohort into the discussion and co-create solutions that work best for them. I think we can all acknowledge companies have been laser focused on diversity and inclusion the wider business case and what they can do. But not many can refute the reality that DNI efforts have not yet delivered on a promise for all professionals in the workplace. There are some communities being left behind. And so uh, I think organizations just to need to acknowledge what some of the, I mean, the facts are as it relates to microaggressions in the workplace, challenges with retention, challenges with advancement, similar to what I mentioned earlier around really taking stock internally, uh, really doing some organizational introspection to find out where the landmines are, where the opportunities are specific to each group across lines of, of difference. You can't treat uh, any employee group as a monolith, and so you really do need to explore bespoke solutions. You mentioned the diversity and inclusion policies and the unconscious bias trainings, and it seems like they've become pretty standard in most companies. How can companies measure the impact and effectiveness of these programs? Measurement can be challenging, right? If you're just looking at pure representation, those numbers are easy uh, you know, to, to track when you're thinking of progress. But when we think about kind of measuring success as it relates to engagement, um, as it relates to performance, there may be a need to debias some of the company's systems as it relates to performance management, as it relates to how you set up your promotion panels, you know, as it relates to feedback structure, hiring uh, guardrails. The measurement will not be the same for every organization, but the value of looking for bias in those processes is equally important to every organization. Um, obviously, they're not all going to be structured the same way, but this will be the, the only way, from a measurement standpoint, you're able to set goals that are actually meaningful by first looking at uh, you know, any systemic bias that might create headwinds um, for progress uh, when leaders are looking to really move the needle. Would you give an example of that systemic bias when it comes to pay? Mm. When it comes to pay, there are kind of simple uh, headwinds in that some companies 
limit year over year increases or they're looking at someone's gains over their current salary, right, their point of departure. Instead of looking at is there parity, is this person getting paid on par with their peers, um, you know, based on their output, their role, and their scope. That ends up being, you know, kind of systemic bias. You have, you know, kind of something in your, your systems that say this is how we manage kind of year-over-year year pay increases and, uh, and increases to variable comp that limits your ability to strive for equity right off the bat. Also, as it relates to pay, you have, in some cultures, you have a pay-for-performance culture. Your bonus is a significant part of your structure. We find at, in our research at CTI, there's a real challenge in middle management. We call it the frozen middle where bias can, can really impact retention and the career trajectory of black talent. I would say for women, I would say for quite a few. If your performance management systems uh, don't have controls for bias, meaning how someone is actually evaluated based on their output, if it's not objective, you easily, and pay for performance cultures, can have one individual getting paid in a way that matches their contributions, and then there are these other ways that bias will creep in, and you have women and communities of color and others not being paid the same way, even if their output and their contributions may match their peers, uh, and because there, there may not be any controls, right? It's, there's no control for whether or not they had access to larger client book, um, whether or not they were given stretch roles um, or projects with senior leadership visibility. The things that you can't control if you know, sponsorship levels are low and access to senior leader advocates is lower for black professionals or for women. You really can't control for the bias that creeps into the actual performance management system that determines how someone can be paid. There's a lot more talk from companies these days about supporting their diverse employees and social justice. Why do you think companies are speaking out now when some of these issues have been going on for ages? <laughs> right. I think companies are speaking out now because the stakes are higher, quite frankly. I think. The world has changed, uh, and the world is watching, and so there's absolutely nowhere to hide. It's extremely important for companies to overcome that initial fear, right, and inertia that might have made it difficult for them to speak about race, which is very much still the third rail, or other social issues in the past. But there are commercial demands for doing this. One, if you care about your people, our studies show that 69% of professionals view companies that take these types of public stances more favorably. We also know that customers and shareholders are beginning to view silence as apathy as well. And so there's a risk to saying nothing. Um, and there are only benefits uh, to leaning into your commitment to your employees and the communities you touch. How do those companies make sure they're taking concrete action and not just giving lip service or putting out some press release? What's extremely important is the company needs to commit to addressing bias within their institutions 
right? Do the work internally so that they have the right to make these statements uh, during times of global or national significance. The conversations that I suggest leaders have, those tough conversations, courageous conversations within the organization are just a small part of what should be done. There should be proactive engagement with your talent acquisition teams, with your line of business leaders in head. There should be accountability driven throughout the organization. And I think from a leadership standpoint, it's critical to signal that injustice is everyone's business and that diversity, equity, and inclusion within the organization is a business priority. Going back to your conversation with your team, has that changed your thinking about how you advocate for diversity and inclusion? It hasn't changed my thinking. It's reinforced my thinking. I now, I've witnessed firsthand the, the power of such conversations to leave lasting impact on an employee base, to actually inspire everyone, most everyone, to be more involved, to lean in uh, to connection with the new organization. And it also has empowered, you know, would-be allies who had no idea where to begin. Yes, they were angry. Yes, they were frustrated. But they were concerned that they would say the wrong things. And uh, I, I realize that this type of conversation within a work environment not only is it important from a leadership standpoint that I signal to uh, you know, the entire team that this matters, but it's remarkable to see uh, them being empowered to take this into their work, but also take these conversations offline and uh, you know, do a bit of learning on their own. Linnea, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. If you'd like to hear more stories of inspiring women, you can find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite audio provider. If you like us, subscribe, share us on social media, and give us a review. Our producer is Trinae Nori. Our executive producer is Kateri Yoakum. Additional help from personal finance editor Beret Lamb. I'm Veronica Dagger. Hang in there, Secrets listeners. You've got this. Thanks for listening. <laughs>